Take your Bibles, if you have them, I hope you do have them. I hope you brought them with you or you've got them on an app somewhere and turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. We're continuing our walk through the book of Philippians. My intention, um, my intention was to be done this week and then the Lord threw some wrench in that and we, uh, are trying to, we're working our way through. Then my intention is to be done next week, but we'll see if the Lord uh, continues that. We're going to be looking today at the end of chapter 3 and end of chapter 4, but I think it's important to remind ourselves a little bit of what's been happening with Paul here. Let me also just tell you a little, little insight on why we're still here, even as we've started this emphasis on revival. In a couple of weeks, um, we are going to be looking at a couple of places in the Old Testament where God teaches us about repentance and revival and what comes in that. And I thought about and prayed about when we start this new emphasis, should we do that? And God just convicted me that what we are going to look at over the next two weeks, which is really the practical steps of living out our faith as Christians in a world that isn't always amenable, ready for, encouraging to us to live out our faith, are the steps of revival. It's interesting because we'll get to this at the end of the message, but... Just to let you know, one of the things that I think is fascinating about what Paul says about what it means to live the Christian life, one of his favorite phrases for us living the Christian life is that he calls us to stand firm. Like, that's it. Like, just stand firm. Just stay where you are. Just hold to the truths that you know. And so today we're going to continue this walk through the book of Philippians in chapter 3 and into the first chapter of uh, first verse of chapter 4, with Paul giving us the beginnings of very practical understandings of what it means to live our lives for the Lord. And as I said, we need to remind ourselves of what just came, because Paul spent chapter 2 describing the mind of Christ and telling about the workers that had been with him, and he gets to chapter 3, and he shifts a little bit to say, this is how the mind of Christ, who gave up his heavenly throne to live for us and to die for us, this is how that example has been lived out or is being lived out in my life. Here I am in a Roman prison. And so Paul says that my goal in life, all the stuff that I did before was trash. It was worth nothing until I met Christ and I desire to know him and the power of his resurrection and the glory of his suffering so I may be made like him in his resurrection. And then he also says, and forgetting what is behind, I press on towards the goal of what is in front of me. Over the last couple of weeks, we've broken that down to remind ourselves of Four characteristics of people that do not waste their life. And this is Paul describing his own life and how he came about that. And so he tells them that if you don't want to waste your life, that one of the things that has to happen is you have to treasure Christ above everything else this world has to offer. And so that's what he said. Everything else is rubbish. Everything else is trash. Everything else is, is not worth even considering except knowing Christ. That you have to trust Christ to provide everything you need. And we talked last week that most of the time when we hear that word, we think of physical needs. But what Paul is really describing there is our spiritual, emotional needs. That he he has already made the way for us to have our sins saved and for us to have an eternal home and glory secured. And when we understand that we need to treasure Christ above everything of this world, that he will take care of all of our needs, then we pursue Christ with an obsessive passion. That we throw off everything else. And we focus our attention completely on Him. 
Like Hebrews chapter 12 says, that we throw off the sin that so easily entangles us in anything that would distract us, and we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith. And then the last thing we do is we look forward to the prize of his praise. He says that's what people do that don't waste their life. They remember that Christ is worth more than anything of this earth. They trust Christ to provide. They obsessively go after Christ. And then they remember that we're living for the future. And then we get to the passage of Scripture today. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 15, says this. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is their shame, and they are focused on earthly things. Our citizenship, however, is in heaven. And we eagerly wait for the Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. So then, my dearly loved and long for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown in this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Now, Paul uses verses 15 and 16. It's kind of a transition statement. And it's this interesting thing because if you remember, and you can look back a few verses in your Bible there, he says, not that I have considered myself to have already obtained this. And the idea behind is that he, what he really says, not that I've already considered myself to obtain perfection or the end. When he comes here in verse 15, he says, but for those of us, and he uses a different form of that word, which means for those of us that are feeling like we are maturing or we're nearing or we're coming close or we are trying to find that life in Christ. For all of us there, these are the things that we ought to live about. What is he talking about? He's talking about what he just said, that we have a passion, obsession for Christ, that we consider everything except Christ to be nothing. He says those of us that are truly following Christ, that are trying, that are mature in the faith, are going to live our lives for his glory, for his purpose, with a singular focus, with the things of this world as nothing to us. And many of the churches that Paul worshipped with, and many of the ones that he helped start, There was a group of people, and we talked about these, that would rise up after him and that would say basically that Paul was good, but we want to give you the perfection of what he said. This is true also in 1 Corinthians. We see this many times where he talks about the spiritual people in your presence, the spirituals. He almost gives them a name, like there's this mythical group. And what he is basically saying is that they may think they've got it figured out, but they are not living according to the ways of the Lord. And if they are not living according to the ways of the Lord and the example of Christ that has been set for us, then they are not spiritual. They are not mature. They are not to be followed. And so Paul uses this to basically say, if if anybody else thinks that, God will show you exactly what you need to understand. God will show you what needs to happen. And then he says, the first thing that we see in this passage for us to live our lives as we ought to for the Lord is that we need to follow cross-centered, heavenly-minded examples. Now here's what's interesting about this. Paul has talked for chapters about the reality 
of the fact that we have to live humbly. Putting others' concerns ahead of our own. Helping others see what they do. Thinking of others above ourselves. And then we come to this passage and he says in the midst of this, if anybody is going to do this, if anybody's going to follow, verse 17 says they need to join in imitating me. Now I just want you to think for a minute how you would feel or how it would come across if I stood before you today and I said, do you want to live the Christian life? Just do exactly what I do because I got it figured out. Right? Now, there, there may be some truth in, hey, I'm your pastor, I'm a spiritual leader, I hope to show you the way, I believe that God has given me some information and we want to move forward in this way, or let me tell you what the scripture says about this, but for me to stand before you and go, you know what, if you want to do what God really wants you to do, just do what I do. It seems a little arrogant, right? right. Apparently not, right? It seems a little arrogant, right? And so sometimes people look at this and say, well, what's Paul thinking here? Paul's just talking about, what did he just say in chapter 2? Have your attitude the same as Christ Jesus, who, although he was in the form of godliness, did not consider something like that to be grasped, but humbled himself and became obedient and all of that. And then Paul comes and says, and this is what I'm not consider all that trash, except for knowing Christ, that Christ is the only thing. And then he comes and he says, imitate me. Well, there are a couple of things that you need to know in this passage to help us to understand what Paul is saying. First of all, he is telling them not necessarily imitate everything I've ever done in my life. He is saying, as far as it is with this pursuit of God that I've just described to you, where I consider everything else as rubbish and where I have put everything else behind me and I am pressing on towards the goal that is in front of me, in that way, in that way, I want you to imitate me completely. Now, here's what we need to understand, too. He doesn't say this as an individual task. He says this as a corporate task. The word that he uses there in the Greek is actually summimite. And all of God's people said, yeah, what? Right? Now, here I want you to break, I want to break it down just for a moment, though, okay? So, mimite in the middle of that is a word from which we get mimic, be like, okay? And on the front of that is the word sum. Now, I'm going to ask, I'm not going to ask who, but if you graduate college with really high grades, they say you graduate what? Summa cum laude, with highest honors, all right? There's a form of that in the midst of this word that means with or together, sim. And the idea is that together, we as a congregation, we as God's people, are to live our lives not thinking about the things of this world, but focusing our attention on the things of God and living for that and sending our lives in a direction that we are singularly focused on Him. What He basically says, I need you to join in imitating with me what Christ laid out for us. And so, yes, Paul is saying imitate me, but he's saying basically imitate me as I imitate Christ. And in any time that I am not doing what Christ would have us to do, the imitation is not required. But together we're going to join in imitating who Christ has shown us to be. And we in our lives need to find and follow examples of people who are doing what God would have them to do. Now we talk about this all the time with our kids as parents. 
Right? We talk about people they're hanging out with, the friends that they choose, who they run with, what's happening. We, you know, at times that we'll tell kids, hey, um, make sure that you're following not the crowd, but you're following people that are going to build you up, that are going to help you, that are going to help you in the direction that God has called you to go. But it's just as true for those of us that are not teenagers or kids, that are not college-age people, that it is true for those of us that are adults, that are following Christ. We need to surround ourselves not with people who are living in a way contrary to what the Word of God says, but we surround ourselves with people that are encouraging us in our faith. That doesn't end us our description of going out into the world and showing evangelism and taking the gospel to the world, but... We need to make sure that we are following the example and watching for people that are doing what God has called us to do in our lives. And as far as they are following Christ themselves. So what does that look like? Well, that means we look for people in our lives that put the needs of others ahead of their own. That we look for people in our lives that aren't grumbling or complaining. That we look for people in our lives that are focused on the gospel. That we look for people in our lives that are hungry for the Word of God, that are studying the Word of God, that are listening to the Word of God and trying to apply it to their lives. That we don't follow people because of their reputation as good citizens of this country, we'll talk about that in a minute, or of this county or of this city, but good citizens of heaven, that they are people that are pursuing the things of God. And he gives a contrast in verses 18 and 19 about those that are different than that. And what we understand is he's talking about people that are in their church. This isn't just people on the outside, although it would apply to many people on the outside of the church as well. But he's saying you have to be careful because there are people inside your church that are not living for the Lord. Now, I will tell you that there's some dispute about whether or not the people that he describes in verses 18 and 19 are saved. I think it's hard to say they're saved when the first thing it says about them in verse 19 is their end is destruction. But there's a reality That even in the Philippian church of Paul's day, there were people who claimed to be followers of Jesus Christ, who said that they were part of their church, who were not. And he said, the evidence is in the fruit. He says, I've often told you, and now say again, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. It's hard to imagine those are saved people. Amen. Their end is destruction. And then he gives a description of who they are. And I think it's important for us to hear this because it is a check for us to see who are we following? Who are we going after? Who are we listening to? He says their God is their stomach. That doesn't mean that they eat whatever they want. It means that they serve their appetites. Their appetites do not serve them. So it's not just a physical appetite. I mean, it could be, but it's not just food. It's their sexuality. It's their desire for relationships. Sometimes it is in their desire for their body to look a certain way. And that they spend their lives serving the appetite that is pulling them. Be whoever you want to be. Try to strive to do what makes you feel good. What makes you happy. What gives you the most satisfaction. And if there isn't a call in our society today at large for people to do exactly that, I don't know what call at large is in our society today. Just do whatever makes you happy. Find your truth and follow that. Paul says that 
People that are enemies of the cross, that are against what God is doing, are people that will fill their appetites. Their God is their belly. Their glory is their shame. Basically, although that's hard to kind of fully understand what's going on, he's saying this, they will brag about things that they should be ashamed of. They will glory in things that they should not hold on to. And then the key to all of this is, he says, they're focused on the earthly things. On the here and now, and not in a way of God moving here and now, but on the stuff we have here, the experience we have here. Paul says, if you're going to live for Christ, you need to imitate godly examples, people that are following the example of what I've just laid out that I'm doing in response to what Christ has done. And then the second thing he says in here is that we need to live out our true citizenship. Verse 20 and 21 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for our Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. Now, the first thing you may think when you read that is, haven't we already talked about this citizenship thing a couple of weeks ago? And the answer to that is yes. Because Paul talks about it twice. He says a little earlier that we are to live as citizens or worthy of as being citizens of heaven. And here he's reminding them again, hey, listen, don't forget you're citizens of heaven. Paul is specifically, by the way, speaking to them about where their allegiance lies and what their goals should be in life. The people in Philippi, as we talked about a few weeks ago, would have been proud Roman citizens. In fact, it is said that, written about, that people that would visit Philippi, it was a Roman colony, they did everything they could to make it feel like Rome, that they said when they visited Philippi, one of the comments that people wrote is, this place reminds me so much of Rome. Reminds me so much of what Rome is. The people in Philippi would have bragged about being a part of the greatest empire on earth. The greatest empire that the earth had ever seen. They would have gloated about their citizenship, even if it was partial, in the Roman Empire. An empire that would last for hundreds of years and span most of the known world. They would have been patriots about their place. Most of you that have been around very long know that I grew up in the 80s. Um, uh, you know, I still think it's the greatest uh, pop culture uh, error in the history of the world. Um, humbly, I think that, um, but it's true. And one of the things that was true about the 80s is, and this is what I grew up in, was I was saturated in what I lived in, is that the 80s, among other things, was still at the height, towards the end of, but the height of the Cold War. And there were very defined good and bad in that place, at least in the movies and the shows and the music that I listened to. And so movies like uh, War Games reminded us that bad things could happen. And Rocky Four reminded us that the United States is always the best. Even the Soviets recognized that. They started chanting his name at the end of the boxing match. Right? And perhaps the greatest movie of them all to bring this pro-American sentiment up, the patriotic feeling, was a movie called Iron Eagle. Anybody here know what Iron Eagle is? We got one, two, three. How many of you have no clue what Iron Eagle is? Your lives have not been fulfilled. (laughs) Iron Eagle was the 
movie about a young man growing up on an Air Force base whose dad gets taken hostage by some foreign enemies, and he decides to steal an American plane and fly over there with his good friend Chappie and rescue his dad. And he does it with a Walkman on his leg playing the best 80s tunes right then. And all I wanted to do with my life was to fly a fighter jet with a Walkman on my leg and go destroy some people on the other side that were bad guys. Some of y'all need to go watch Iron Eagle this afternoon, all right? And it formed and was understood, even some of our songs. You know, I mean, I don't know if you know this or not, but Born in the USA was a protest song about the USA that has been turned into an anthem for the USA. Lee Greenwood's song came out in that time. I remember sitting in the Liberty Bowl watching Tennessee play. And they sang that line from the lakes of Minnesota to the hills of Tennessee. And we, boy, we, we went nuts. You know, an emotional stirring there. And I love being a part of this country. That's embedded in the fabric of who I am. Now, as I've gotten older and as I've studied God's Word and I've seen stuff, I realize that perhaps it wasn't the idealistic place that we all thought. And there were real problems and real issues and still are, and we deal with those. I still, the patriotic part of me, would rather live here than anywhere else in the world. That's why I do. Because I feel like this is a place that God has placed me, and I feel like God is working in our country But at the same time, something happened to me in the mid-80s that also changed and should change. And I say should change because I was nine years old and I didn't fully grasp all of this. Change how I feel about that. Because in 1985, as a nine-year-old, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And the moment that I did that, I instantly became a citizen of heaven. And my citizenship in heaven supersedes any other citizenship that I have. At that moment, at nine years old, when I, at First Baptist Church in Dyersburg, Tennessee, over on the left-hand side of the, of the sanctuary, said to the Lord, Lord Jesus, I am accepting your salvation. Come save me. And I had that real experience with the Lord. At that moment, I became a citizen of heaven. And at that moment, my allegiance should have... And always shall be shifted first and foremost to the kingdom of my father. And Paul is reminding the people of Philippi this in a very subtle way for us, but in a very clear way for them. Because he says a couple of things in here that we just read from a religious, spiritual, biblical mindset that we've always seen, but they would have heard differently. He says... Our citizenship is in heaven. We've already talked about that. Live as people that are citizens of heaven. But then he says, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in our day, Savior and Lord have become religious terms. Those are things we say in religious services that we think about in religious terms. But in their day, Savior and Lord were political terms. Caesar was Lord and Rome was a Savior. That you looked to Caesar as your master. Lord meant master. It would be used for people like the master of a house, the lord of a house. And he's saying that Caesar would be master. And when you had a problem in Philippi, your hope is that if you got in trouble, if somebody invaded, if somebody came after you as a city, that the Savior was going to be Rome. And Paul says, we are citizens of heaven. Our hope, our Lord is Jesus Christ. And our Savior is coming from heaven, not from any human place. 
He basically tells them that our citizenship in heaven reminds us that what happens here and now, yes, it's important. But compared to what's coming, it is minuscule. He's also subtly reminding them that at one day, what they think is an indestructible empire will become a place for tourists to go and look at what used to be. Because it's temporary, as all kingdoms, as all nations are on this planet. And as much as I love this country and believe in the founding principles and way that freedom for for what we want to do in worshiping God, as much as I believe in that, the reality is that if you look at the history of time, if the Lord tarries his coming for an indefinite period of time, this nation at one day will not be what it is today. And he says that your allegiance goes to the thing that is higher and more secure and forever. Even if, even if we live our lives and nothing really changes much and we live out and die and we go to heaven, one of the things that we have to realize is it is foolish to invest in today when the length of time we're going to spend in eternity is so great. Francis Chan uses the illustration that if you were to take a rope and you were to sit it here at my foot and you were to stretch it to the back of this sanctuary, out that sanctuary door, down the hallway, out the front door, into the parking lot and down to City Hall. And you were to put a red dot on the edge of the rope that is right here at my foot, that that red dot would symbolize the length of time that we are going to spend on this earth as compared to the eternity we're going to spend that is the rest of the rope. And he said, citizens of heaven realize that you cannot invest your entire life in the red dot. It's foolish. Paul says that we have a higher allegiance. He says in this passage of Scripture that we have a higher hope. That's what the point of the Savior and the Lord is. But not only that, he says that our bodies are going to be transformed and it's going to be glorious. And the power that enables to subject everything to himself, he's going to reconstitute us. Because of that, we have a higher standard. Our job, our goal, our purpose is to live life in such a way that we give the people that are around us an example of what the future is going to look like for those that are in Christ Jesus. That we are to be the teaser trailer for the coming eternity with Christ. And sometimes you hear this, well, you can be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. And I remember C.S. Lewis said that every great thing that has been done on this earth, you can trace back to people that were thinking more of the age that is to come than the age that is. And as they're focused on what God would have them to do in eternity, it causes them to think about and to Try to fix and to do great works here to preview what is coming for heaven. And so Paul says, listen, together, imitate the example that I've given you based on what Christ has done. And secondly, live out your citizenship in heaven as its ultimate allegiance and hope and standard. 
And then he gives the final command. And we're really going to flesh this out next week, what this means. Because he gives some very practical things following this. But he says, so then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters. Some commentators say that there is no way that he could express his love more sincerely and devoutly than he does right there. He calls them my joy and my crown. So then he says, I love you dearly. I want to see you, brothers and sisters. I miss you. You are my joy. You are what I rejoice over with the Lord because of what he's done in your life. You are my victory crown because of what God has done in your lives. I love you and I care about you. And because of that, I'm asking you in the manner which I've just described, the humble service, the seeking the Lord with a whole heart, with everything you've got, of considering the things of the Lord better than anything this world has to offer, with a focus on what is coming as the citizen of heaven, in that way, stand firm in the Lord. Don't let anyone deceive you or move you or tear you away from what Christ is doing in our lives. My prayer for us in these days, even as we seek the Lord to move here and now, is that we would stand firm in the things that God has revealed to us, in the things that God has shown us, in the things God wants to do in our lives, that we would stand firm in the knowledge of who we are and what he was done, and we will serve one another out of the love that comes from that, and we will serve the world around us for his glory and the spread of his kingdom. And that we will stand firm in what we have been given in him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for a gracious and good God who gives us the opportunity to come to you. Even, Lord, even when we have failed, when we haven't lived out what you've called us to live out. And Lord, we pray in this moment That you will show us the areas of our lives where we haven't been imitating your example and the way Paul described it of seeking you above all else. We pray, Lord, that you'll give us just an understanding of what it means to consider the things of this world as nothing compared to you. That we would focus our lives in imitating the example Paul set and living as citizens of heaven and standing firm in the faith. pray that we would live more for eternity than we do for the here and now. And Lord, that we would, as we've already prayed today, see your kingdom come in power and in strength and in might and in your glory here as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.